So where are you going in India? I'm going to uh, Udaipur in Rajasthan for a conference and then to Delhi and Bangalore. I mean, it's kind of boring, but uh, I've been to Delhi and Bangalore many times. But, you know, I'm going to be hanging out with the RSS. So that's going to be fun. Wow. Well, I- yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm learning about them RSS people. I don't know if you remember this. You must. Back in, I don't know, 2013 or thereabouts, you and I went to India. It was on one of your State Department lecture tours. Yeah. And one of the stops we made was to an all-girls Islamic high school in Lucknow. You remember this? Oh, how could I forget? I tell people about that all the time. Right. So they they drop us off at the entrance, and from the, the front gate to the seminar room, it's like a quarter-mile walk, and the entire walkway is shoulder to shoulder lined with the students, these these Muslim girls, showering Walter in rose petals, which is not like a metaphor. This this actually happened. And it's so no, I Yeah. I, I, it's it's amazing. I was only maybe it took me obviously by surprise at first. Within 15 seconds I totally adjusted to it. <laughs> yeah. So we're making our we're making our way to the classroom and Walter's walking very slowly. And it's just this like endless hail of flower petals and these screaming girls like Walter's Harry Styles and Mandeep, the the State Department minder and I are like catching the stray petals behind. It was it was one of the most amazingly bizarre things I've ever seen. But maybe not. I don't know. Maybe this happens to you everywhere you go in India. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's more common for me than for you, Jeremy. Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters, brought to you by Talbot and the Hudson Institute. Every episode, we help you understand the news, decide what news matters and what doesn't, and enjoy following the story of America and the world more than you do now. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News Writer, Global View Columnist at The Wall Street Journal, and Distinguished Fellow at Hudson. Let's start with a round of news or phone news. Toss out three stories in the news cycle, and Walter, you tell us what's signal and what's noise, what headlines are really important, and what listeners can comfortably ignore. This week's first story, American young people are abusing booze less and weed more, according to research that looked at the last two decades of data. Adolescent cannabis abuse has increased by a whopping 245% in the U.S. since 2000 with a particularly dramatic rise occurring in just the past few years. At the same time, rates of alcohol abuse have declined among those between 6 and 18 years old. That's especially good news about the 6-year-olds out there. But what about this trend? Is is this just like, you know, your grandfather's alcohol, is your father's cocaine, is your weed, or is there something more notable and different here that's culturally, I don't know, interesting or, or concerning? Is it news or faux news? Well, I think it, this could actually be news. I mean, since if I were a really cynical billionaire and I wanted the proles to stay quiet 
and you know, like maybe be filled with anger and bitterness, but to you know, basically sit around in coffee houses talking about how mad they were and how much they hated the system, but completely unable to organize and and do anything that would get in the way of my nefarious plans. I would be so in favor of pot legalization. I would I would fund groups. I would tell DAs not to prosecute. Uh, because I think particularly, you know, I, I mean, I can't speak from personal experience on levels of THC in, uh, in pot today, but, but those in the know tell me that it makes the marijuana that was popular when I was a kid uh, seem like nothing. And if that's the case, um, uh, I, think it's, I think it may actually end up being a more dangerous and debilitating drug than booze um it's uh um you know and and there's there's evidence coming out now again i don't follow it closely but from what i see there their connections with this new kind of super pot and uh, mental disability even mental illness uh, particularly i think in young men it's it's really bad news um, and it's not that not that getting drunk is good news, and um, but I I I think it also it weakens people's executive function. I think, and this is just you know this may be just an, a grouchy old guy spouting off about eh, young people blah blah blah, um, but I think it it kind of it dulls your ambition and your capacity to get things done. So from the standpoint of ultra-conservative billionaires who just want the status quo to roll and the proles to stay quiet, this is the best news of the week. For the rest of us, maybe it's a problem. Our second story. Owing to population growth and the intensity of its religiosity, Sub-Saharan Africa, according to the Wall Street Journal, is today the world's most active and hotly contested religious battleground. The region was 59% Christian and 30% Muslim as of 2020, according to one database. In any case, Christianity is growing in Africa, Islam is growing in Africa, and the rate of violent conflict is also growing. Now, I can't imagine this isn't news, but you know, some of our listeners might think, you know, this part of the world has been a source of violence and a lot of misery and fanaticism my whole life. It's clearly tragic. But for me, my family, my community, my world, you know, religious wars in Africa just unfortunately aren't really news for me. So tell us what it is, Walter. Well, if you're, you know, worried that uh, African religious militias are going to sort of appear in your town and raise it to the ground— you're right to think this isn't news for you in that sense. But if you're at all interested in where the world is going to be going over the next 20 or 30 years, this matters a lot. Um, it's, uh, it's very important, I think, to understand that, um, that the Christianization of much of Africa is a product of the post-colonial era. This is not missionaries who are sort of imposing their religion on the population. This is stuff that, by and large, happened 
after 1950 and after the decolonization wave was going through Africa. A lot of it is indigenously driven, African congregations, African denominations and pastors. Africa is now exporting missionaries to other parts of the world. And in places like London, where there are now more people going to religious services than in the British countryside, it's changing the demographics and the profile of religion around the world. Um, It's also changing the way denominations work. My own little denomination, ACNA, is a group of Anglicans in North America who are actually affiliated with the African Anglican Church, which is the majority of Anglicans worldwide are in this kind of Africa-led group. Uh, You're seeing something similar with global Methodists as as Americans who have a more conservative theology are going with the growing African branches of their religion rather than the kind of shrinking North Atlantic European ones. But it it will, I think, um, it's likely to have two big consequences in Africa. One is going to be state formation and state strengthening. All over the world, all through history, one of the things that we see is that the rise of these Abrahamic religions is often connected with the development of much more powerful states. Um, That was true in Europe. It was true in the Middle East with the Islamic caliphates and so on. And I think we're going to see in Africa that as Abrahamic monotheism, whether in its Christian or Islamic form, deepens its hold on Africa, and it really is happening quite quickly, um, you will see a tendency toward the consolidation of states in Africa. That is not likely to be necessarily always a peaceful process. Um, Religion, people tend to convert to religions in groups so that, by the way, I don't like using the word tribe for African ethnic groups, because many of them, if they were in Europe, would be called nations. Uh, So um, nations often tend to go kind of one way on these things, so that a majority of the Igbo will be Christian, a majority of the Hausa would be Muslim. And so the religious dimension uh, can enter into these rivalries between ethnic and national groups, And because African boundaries make no sense, they're as crazy as the Austro-Hungarian Empire or the Ottoman Empire in terms of bringing a lot of different ethnic groups to live under one central state. Those states are going to have a really hard time holding on as these national groups with their now religious unity start trying to assert themselves more. So I think it's going to lead to a lot more turbulence in Africa. We're certainly seeing in terms of jihadi warfare and radical Islamist groups, we're seeing a lot going on there. Tens of thousands of people in Nigeria have been killed in religious connected or uh, violence, often again between farming groups who who are predominantly Christian and nomadic groups who are predominantly Muslim. But there's a lot more to come. Our final story of the week. We knew it was happening at the time, but now all the receipts are officially in. In the 2020 election, according to the Washington Post, 
Donald Trump improved his performance among Hispanic voters, not only in Florida, which was the big story at the time, but by 20 points in Wisconsin, 18 points in Texas and Nevada, 12 points in Pennsylvania and Arizona, and also, most shockingly, among Hispanic voters in Chicago, New York, and Houston. In Chicago's predominantly Hispanic precincts, Trump improved his raw vote by 45% over 2016. Meanwhile, as you can imagine, Hispanic support for Democrats dropped by 18% over the course of Trump's four-year term. Is this news or faux news? It's news, though that, you know, that hides the fact that people who were anti-Trump in this country should be falling on their knees thanking white men, because I believe it was Trump's uh, falling support among white men that enabled Biden to win, given these losses in other groups. So uh, for, for our anti, for our most fervent anti-Trump friends out there, it's time to do a little kind of veneration of white male saviors who, in your view, have saved the republic from, a, uh, from, from the fate of, of Trump. Um, look, uh, the, um, uh, uh, it's one of the oldest things in American life is that identity tends to, if I can use the word Trump class, and that, and that people vote a lot based on who they see, who they are, how, what they see as the interests of the group they represent, both its economic interests and, in a sense, its respect. Uh, Hispanics, and again, that's, that's a made-up category that doesn't have a lot of meaning on the ground. Uh, Mexicans are very different from Guatemalans and Argentines. But also people from North Mexico are quite different from, from various kinds of people that you find in South Mexico, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And lumping people together in a group and calling them Latinx or whatever, Latinx, I don't even know how to pronounce that monstrosity, is, uh, is, <laughs> is not a good way to understand American politics or understand this group. But um, what immigrants typically want and that's probably the thing that unites American Hispanics more than their um, uh, language or origin in the Western Hemisphere, is they want opportunity. Uh, they want a chance to get a job. They want a chance to get own a home. I wrote about this in our California in the California essay on on Via Media at Tablet that. Um, that that's what got the Okies, the penniless immigrants from the white South in the 1930s in California, turned them into staunch Reagan voters, is jobs and housing. Unfortunately or unfortunately, the plans, uh, the, the economic views of, the, of Democrats, particularly in big cities, though not only, are about as anti-immigrant and anti-growth as they could possibly be. Uh, uh, regulations, NIMBY rules that make housing incredibly expensive. You know, imagine if you were an immigrant wanting to open the kind of 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 company that an in immigrant typically can, say an auto repair shop. Okay, what permits are you going to have to get to do that in New York? You know, think of all the sort of you know the the waste you're going to have to dispose of the safety regulations you're going to have to respond to et cetera et cetera et cetera uh, basically 
this isn't necessarily the intention of the people writing all these regulations, but they're creating a world in which it's almost impossible for immigrants without a high level of education and skills to prosper. I mean, it's one thing if you're from a wealthy South Asian family or just an educated South Asian family, you can go to Silicon Valley. But if you're coming out of an agricultural or poor economics and poor educational system in Central America, all right, basically the Democratic Party today has only welfare to offer you, and it's not good enough. Beyond that, there's a kind of insult in the schooling, uh, you know, the opposition to charter schools and school choice. It's not only putting you in schools that don't work very well, but it's also putting you in schools where your kids are going to be indoctrinated by a bunch of um, sort of extremists and radicals, and, uh, and, and kids don't like that. Parents don't like that. These are often socially very conservative groups. So it's not so much, I think, to, to this point that either Donald Trump or the Republicans have figured out a surefire method of attracting these voters, because I think we've actually, you know, the Republicans are actually very, very slow to develop real programs and have real candidates running on the ground with programs that could make these immigrants' lives better. But it's more just the sign of the Democrats driving them away. Uh, if Maybe the Democrats will smarten up. Maybe the Republicans will smarten up. Whoever does first has the chance to get a get a build a, a an electoral lock on what could well be the most important group of swing voters in American politics. All right, that does it for the news this week. Let's go to our next segment, the learning curve. Each episode, we draw on a blunder or big mistake from history with relevant lessons for our own time. This week, let's talk about the labor governments in Britain after World War II. Walter, I'm going to draw on one of your chapters in The Ark of a Covenant, Cyrus in Britain. So the loss of British global power of large parts of the empire, of their economy, of their centrality to events just hasn't really sunk in yet in the immediate post-war years. They're still in the habit of command, as, as you've said. And the Attlee government decides it's at this moment that it's going to pursue a very ambitious foreign policy of liberal empire abroad, while at the same time doing socialism at home. And oh, by the way, they don't plan to pay off their debts to America. They're crying poor a bit, but meanwhile, they're also like bombing Iraq and the guy who's explaining all this to the Americans is Keynes, who's this Oxford Don who's been hanging out with Virginia Woolf. I mean, it's just, it's a mess. And needless to say, it doesn't work out. It doesn't end well. And in some sense, maybe a bit unfair, but the country still hasn't quite rediscovered some of what it lost in that period. So talk to us about the mistakes or the big mistake that the British labor governments made in the immediate post-war years and maybe some relevant lessons there for Americans today. All right. Well, um, I mean, the, British, the, the post-war British labor government uh, didn't last all that long. After six years, Churchill got back in. 
But I think, and and honestly, the the Tories continued in some of these mistakes, primarily because they were things that the the voters wanted, as we talked about in the in the last podcast. Europeans, and this would include the British in this instance, they love everything about their policies except the results of their policies, and typically, uh, you know. While they're discontented with the results of those policies, the policies remain so beautiful and so deeply esteemed that they continue voting for the policies even as they groan about the results. And that's not a bad description of British political history with a few exceptions since World War II. Yeah, the the labor dilemma really came down in 1945 to something very specific, which is Britain had really had spent everything it had in World War II. Um, it uh, for year for centuries, Britain had been building up international investments around the world. During World War II, the Americans made it absolutely clear we wanted to destroy the British Empire. Um, uh, Kane in, in in his life of Keynes, Lord Skidelsky writes that um, uh, Keynes tr- saw himself as trying to stop the Americans from picking out the eyes of the British Empire after the war and said that the Americans seemed to have three objectives, defeating Germany, defeating Japan, and dismantling the British Empire. And it was never clear at any given moment which of these objectives was uppermost in their minds. So the Brits come out of this war and Labor says, okay, we need a welfare state in this country, and we need to nationalize key industries, the railroads, the coal, all of this stuff. Um, but sadly, they don't have the money to do it. And there are, base, in, in the long term, what they think is if we can keep the oil countries of the Middle East, of the Persian Gulf and Iran, under our thumb, then we can keep their oil in the sterling zone, and we can export that oil into other currency zones, and that'll keep our currency strong and keep, you know, enable us to buy stuff from the United States in particular. So that's our long-term solution, is maintaining the empire in the Middle East, even as we give up on India, and Africa's not such a big deal either way. Uh, But in the short term, we need a lot of American money. We need loans. So they come to the United States, and what they find is that the Americans are saying, look, first of all, you borrowed a lot of money from us in World War I, and you never repaid it. Um, and that was after we had borrowed a lot of money from you to fight the Civil War, and for 30 years you made us stick to the gold standard, and we repaid every damn cent, even though it caused a two-generation agricultural depression. And—, and totally envenomed our politics. Thank you very much. But you were the one who said that the morality of repaying debts is absolute, and now you want to switch. So there's that problem. But then what are the two things they want the money for? Number one, they want money so they can preserve the British Empire, specifically in the Middle East, by and large. Liberal Americans didn't want that to happen. They thought it was a terrible idea. Uh, And since it also, by the way, involved the British supporting the Arabs against the Palestinian Jews as Israel tried to emerge, that made it even harder, an even tougher sell on the left, which in those days in the U.S. was very pro-Israel. So you have that problem. And then the other thing you want to do with the money is fund the socialism in Britain. 
And so exactly why, you know, so the right is going, wait a minute. You want to, you want us to fund your transition to socialism? No, thank you. So they run into a real stone wall. Truman is able to get them a little bit of money, but at an interest rate they don't like. But that they were trying, they felt they had to have a big foreign policy, which is expensive, but they also had to have a big welfare state, which they couldn't pay for. And they couldn't develop a political concept that would get the Americans to support what the British were trying to do. In all the years since, the British have been sort of continue to be torn a bit between this hunger for a large welfare state at home and the desire, as they would say now, to, quote, punch above their weight in foreign affairs. And the class politics that we see in Britain the resentment, um, and now added uh, the sort of complications over Brexit. Britain is still in this kind of complicated, uh, no-win international situation. As Dean Acheson said, they, they've lost their empire but haven't found a role. They're working on it. Uh, they've got some, the latest Tory government has come up with some interesting ideas, but I think we're still very far from... Britain really establishing a place for itself in the modern world. Well, that takes us to our final segment, The Big Conversation. Walter, it seems like a crime that it's taken us till episode five to talk about the blue model. There's too much here to cover in one podcast. We'll be coming back to it repeatedly, but maybe introduce our listeners to this concept. What is the blue model? What did it do to American history? And how is its decline affecting our politics and society today? The Industrial Revolution was a big thing. And it took the world a long time, even in the, quote, advanced countries, to figure it out and figure out how to handle it. So you have, you know, over 50% of the population once lived on farms today. Less than 2% make their living from agriculture in that way. Um, uh, you had sort of whole new industries coming up, whole new in, uh, old industries collapsing, uh in economic and political power changes, the development of industrial working class, the rise of financial cycles with um, depressions and huge swings in the economy from one year to the next. Cities go from being at most uh, urban agglomerations of about a million people to being cities of 10, 15, 20 million people. All of this often in a very few years. People didn't understand, like, how do you get clean water to those homes, clean food, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And for much of the history of the Industrial Revolution, there was a great fear that that the forces of chaos would overturn society. Socialists and communists hoped this would lead to the proletarian revolution and every uh, everything would change. Others feared it would lead to fascism and dictatorship because you needed an iron fist to control all the social stresses of industrialism. But after World War II, it kind of emerged really first in America and spreads to other places. 
seemed like we'd found a way to manage that. Um, younger listeners will not remember any of this, but back when I was a kid, and you know, mammoths rule the earth and all of that, but um, Amer- the American economy was incredibly regulated. Bus companies couldn't either add or subtract service to a new city or change a fare without the permission of the federal government. The interest rates that banks charged on loans or paid on savings, again, was regulated. Uh, Airline companies flew specified routes at specified costs. There was only one telephone company in the whole country, and if you didn't like it, um, too bad. You could just like not have a telephone. And naturally, also by the there were three automobile companies, the big three automobile companies, and certainly for the for the first post-war years, there wasn't any foreign competition. The Germans and the Japanese hadn't entered the car market to say nothing of the Koreans and others. And so you basically either bought one of the crappy cars that Detroit wanted to sell you or you walked. And that society, that very regulated society, ended for a time worked really, really well. At least it seemed to work well for a lot of people. Uh, One of the things would be jobs were pretty secure. If If there are only three car companies and they have no competition, your chances of getting laid off are not high. It's even better if you have only one big phone company and uh, that phone company or a utility company doesn't really have to worry about the bottom line because it's a, it, the government each year looks at its costs and then says, okay, well, your profit rate is 4%. So you can charge 4% more than your cost of doing business which would mean that uh, they used to say that in the utility business, you could make money by, you could increase your profits by redecorating your office because that increased your cost base. So there wasn't a lot of pressure to close down a failing factory or to sort of constantly look for ways to squeeze more efficiencies out of operations. And I would say, as we and, and I kind of call that era in American society um, I call that model of economic organization the blue social model or the blue model. Um, it's very bureaucratic. Most most jobs you would sort of you know get a job at eighteen or, or twenty one, depending on whether or not you went to college. Chances are you would stay with the same company your whole life. You would gradually move up the ladder in within that company. Wages, generally speaking, would increase in line with productivity growth over time. And when we look back on that era, a lot of people are very nostalgic for it. Um, There was this sense of, you know, the jobs were great, but the products were crappy. Uh, Everybody would like the job security that you used to have working for Ma Bell, as people called AT&T, then the telephone monopoly, but nobody won't want the phone service that it provided. And that's generally true throughout the economy. We would love to have the comfy airline travel that they had in the old days, but we wouldn't want to pay the fares and we wouldn't want, you know, we wouldn't want, we wouldn't put up with the various regulations that that came with it. And that 
the thing is that that society worked so well in the United States and Europe that it that the social conflicts of the past century just kind of evaporated. The labor unions, they, they didn't want to overthrow the system. Socialist parties became much more democratic and accommodating. They just wanted to tweak the system. And so politics would be, there would be sort of the Republicans who were maybe a little bit more conservative and wanted to favor bi- the business side of the of the triangle, the iron triangle of government, business, and labor unions. They would want business to do a little better. The Democrats might want to give a little bit more money to working people in labor unions, but both supported a really strong role for the government in in this policy making. And every there was a real consensus around this idea of the blue models regulated capitalist economy. And it looked like this was the answer to all the social problems of the Industrial Revolution and that it was the firm foundation, any progress would be built on this foundation, that nothing disruptive was going to happen. So in the future, you know, television reception would get better from year to year. Wages would go up from year to year. Stuff would get nicer, but it wouldn't cost, you know, but people would be able to buy more of it, but there would be no real changes in the way that we lived and this model was was there for all time. And since that was the end of history. And a lot of people thought that when the capitalist world kind of outproduced and outcompeted the socialist world in the Cold War, that that, that just was the, the final seal of approval on the permanence of, of this blue social model. So that's kind of where it came from and how it worked at its peak. But the trouble is that it didn't last. It could, I, I think it's, it contained the seeds of its own destruction. It wasn't the final form of society. And we can, we'll have to come back to this, I suspect, in future podcasts. And I don't want to sort of drone on too long about it now. But there are a couple of big things that, that, that we should look at. First, there's international competition. As Germany and Japan recover from World War II, they're able to make cars. And you know what? They're making better cars than Detroit could make. And uh, they start selling them in the United States. And people start saying, wow, I'm sick of this car. In fact, it was the left that began the kind of anti- corporate movement saying, you know, we need a consumer's rights movement. The blue model may produce good jobs, but it really produces crappy products and we can't stand these crappy products. We need better stuff. And uh, you had exposés unsafe at any speed that said that Detroit's cars were no good, et cetera, et cetera. And, and now suddenly you have all of these new entrants, uh, finance becomes international Um, And so American firms have to start becoming much more agile in order to compete. And you start seeing layoffs. You start seeing 
aggressive competition. Americans can't just go on with having living, doing the same job at five times the wage of someone in, in Japan or a hundred times the wage of someone in China when that started. So economic reality in that sense begins to erode the, the foundations of the blue model economy. And in the same way, well, and so we can look now at our economy and the parts of our economy that still kind of work like the blue model, like the health system, the healthcare system, the legal system, there's no foreign competition, very heavily government regulated, um, uh, healthcare, university system, the education system, costs have skyrocketed much faster than the rate of inflation while the stuff that isn't in the blue market, in the blue model zone, like telecommunications, like the goods that we wear that are coming out of this global market, our clothes and other things, those costs have actually in many cases gone down or at least risen more slowly than the general rate of inflation. So we're finding that the elements of the economy that have stayed with the blue model are becoming less and less sustainable. So that's one, one set of problems. And the other set of problems is cultural. That, you know, the jobs in, the blue, in a blue model society tended to be pretty well paid. Um, you know, manufacturing workers were, you know, by historic standards were paid very well. But manufacturing jobs, frankly, suck. Uh, that is... They involve, like, you have no control really over what you do, and you just sort of, on an assembly line, you make repetitive motions. It's very, very boring. And your satisfaction really does not come out of the work that you do in the way, you know, it, it did in more traditional occupations. Um, you, uh, it, it, it's entirely about the money that you make. And you get you get a society that becomes a mass production for mass consumption economy is one that sort of is, is kind of hedonistic consumer driven advertising, uh, make, it makes the satisfaction of desire of consumer desire, the kind of foundation of the social edifice. There are all kinds of reasons why this is corrosive. And the sort of decay of, of cultural capital that we see around American society, breakdown of institutions of all kinds, problems in the family, is something that actually, and again, culture critics on the left saw this in many cases before culture critics on the right did, um, that, the, that the blue model industrial capitalist society is profoundly corrosive of some of the most important elements in society and in human character that make for happiness. So the information revolution and, uh, is, is eroding the economic basis of the blue, mo blue model economy and the cultural decay that, that, and social decay that comes with a consumer-focused mass production, mass consumption economy is making us less capable to manage to to keep up the framework of the old economy. So we've got this. So we're back. We're back in the in this in the kind of chaos of economic changes uh, and and so, social and cultural changes uh, up 
overturning our institutions and our ways of life. And like our predecessors during the Industrial Revolution, we don't have the answers to a lot of the problems that we confront. We're groping. Hopefully, we'll find something like they did, an upgraded form of a social model that takes advantage of the wealth that the information revolution produces to address some of the problems that it causes. But that's a, that's a task for the future. Well, working through some of those intellectual and practical answers to those problems is going to feature prominently in the Via Media series of essays at Tablet, and it'll be a continuing feature here on the podcast. But that's it for the big conversation for this week. Let's end on the tip of the week. We're sending you off to India this week, Walter. So tell us, which figure in Indian history would you recommend our listeners read up on and learn about? And you can't say Gandhi, non, non-Gandhi answers only. Mm. Now that's a tough question because we've got thousands of years of Indian history. And Let's Indi- limit it to, uh, yeah. Right. Maybe but 20, I'm, 20th I'm and 21st century. I'm going to pick uh, an, an Indian who's actually become an American citizen uh, as our Indian of the week, so to speak. And that's Jagdish Bhagwati who is a professor at uh, Columbia University and uh, was a, a, a friend and advisor to Prime Minister Manmohan Singh, who introduced a lot of the economic reforms that uh, under his and later governments have, have begun India's rise to become a great power. Jagdish understood that the capitalist economic system was not the enemy of Indian development, but its friend. Uh, Nehru and others in the Congress party at the time of Indian independence sort of opted for their own version of of a socialist development model with a planned economy. Uh, Jagdish Bhagwati was really one of the intellectual pioneers of Indians who wanted to get beyond what people used to call the Hindu rate of growth, uh, a sort of slow rise. In 1980, India's GDP was 65% of China's. Today, it's only 17% of China's. And that opening gap has been obviously a, a major factor in world politics and in uh, the American need to get much more involved in Asia. Jagdish had a vision, has a vision, for how the adoption of market-oriented reform in India plus a, uh, uh, an international environment that is receptive to Indian growth can transform that. And so I think uh, Jagdish is, is someone who we, we could all learn from and certainly admire. And as someone who's become an American citizen and sees no contradiction between his love of India and his deep, deep patriotism in the United States, he's an emblem of the kind of relationship that I hope that India and the United States will have in the 21st century. That's it for this week. Thanks to my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 